As my daughter Layla was doing some homework, she asked me, Hey, Mom, who is the villain in Jack and the Beanstalk? And I said, The giant, I think. And she said, Is it really the giant? Because is it fair that the giant is the villain when Jack is the one who broke into his house and stole something? Just, just another conversation to remind me Layla is a better person than I am. But it also reminded me how much we like a good villain. Right? This, this was a part of a unit she was in in school where they're learning about protagonists and antagonists. They're trying to figure out how stories are put together. And it is really a main trope of most of our movies and books and beloved stories, right? Just think about it. Cinderella, evil stepmother. Ariel, Ursula. Aladdin, Jafar. Simba, Scar. I asked Katie for all these this morning. Harry Potter, Voldemort. In Star Wars, it's Darth Vader versus, I mean, basically everybody, right? And as I was talking to Katie this morning, our resident Disney expert, she said, well, without a villain, it's not really a story, right? And I feel like that's pretty true. Every story needs an evil or at least less good counterpart. And today's gospel is no different. We have these Five short verses in Luke, and yet they are filled with so much tension and history and backstory. So this is about Herod and Jesus. Now, Herod is not known in scripture or really in history as a good guy. But in order for today's gospel text to be fully appreciated, I think we do need to dig just a little bit into the person of Herod. So Herod, this is Herod Antipas. He was the ruler of the region in and around Galilee. He was the son of Herod the Great, who you might remember with the Christmas story, right? The, the King Herod that we hear about in our Christmas story. It was one of his sons is Herod Antipas. Now Herod the Great had been given all of Judea to rule over when Rome invaded. And when he died, the area of Judea was split between his four children. And Herod Antipas got Galilee. This was, of course, something that could not be done without permission of the Roman authorities. So these four sons, when their father died, they did a fair bit of groveling and capitulating to keep their power. Now, despite Herod Antipas's connection to Rome, there was a tenuous hope in the people of Galilee that he might bring about a time of peace between the Jewish people and the Roman government. As a local boy, a Jewish leader, he was not from the line of David, so he wasn't technically supposed to be in charge, but he was still one of them. And so to the people in the region of Galilee, they thought, well, at least he's not Roman, right? He's not Roman. He's he's one of us. So the role of Herod Antipas was to keep the Romans pleased, right? They could stay in power. But he was also supposed to squash any uprisings against the Romans by the Jewish people, so he kind of had to make sure they were happy so they wouldn't rise up either. He was kind of a middleman, right? He was trusted loosely by both and kind of by neither. Now, Herod ruled by intimidation and threats, by violence and fear. 
He did what was needed in order to remain in power. He buttered up those who he needed to butter up. He schmoozed and lied and made sure his position was good first. He even ordered the execution of John the Baptist, which, by the way, John was in prison simply for pointing out how corrupt and sleazy Herod was. But then Herod ordered his execution as a reward after his stepdaughter danced well at his birthday party. Real stand-up guy. So Herod, when he had heard rumors of this new person starting to heal people and perform miracles, he first thought it was John resurrected. And eventually, as he learned more and more about this Jesus guy, he began to suspect that the rising power of Jesus was a threat to his own power. So he started making some plans to kill him too. And this is where we enter today's story. Jesus has, at this point, set his face towards Jerusalem. But unlike some of the other gospel accounts, here in Luke, Jesus is taking his sweet time getting there. He is healing people, teaching, helping, and performing all sorts of miracles on the way. Luke's gospel says he sets his face towards Jerusalem in chapter 9. He doesn't end up in Jerusalem until chapter 19. So we have all this space in between where Jesus is doing what needs to be done. Some Pharisees come up to Jesus. They say, hey, you need to leave this area of Galilee, which is under Herod's rule, because he wants to kill you. So you should go away from here where he can't touch you. And Jesus' response is the text in front of us today. It's kind of short with a bit of historical context and backstory that makes it a little confusing for us hearing it today. And also we get the return of my favorite, sassy Jesus. He says, you go and tell Herod, that fox, I've got work to do. Now I think we can safely assume that these Pharisees do not go relay this insult to Herod because they're equally afraid of him uh, as anyone else. So they do not go and relay the message. But Jesus continues, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will finish my work. Now, those of us listening here may take, may make the connection between the third day and what it means that the work will be finished on that day. We can easily make the connection to our own understanding of death and resurrection. But it is safe to say that those around him do not quite get it the way we do. He continues, almost repeating himself, today and tomorrow and the next day, I must be on my way, for it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. See, Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die there. He knows it's going to happen. He's going to get on his way. But he also says, I've got some work to do first. If you've ever wondered what it looks like to stick to a plan, look no further. Jesus knows what he is supposed to do. He knows what is going to happen when he arrives in Jerusalem. But he's got work to do. It's one of the things that sticks out to me when I read this story, is that Jesus just continues to do the things he's always done, just heading somewhere else. He does have this end goal in sight, right? But he is nothing if not consistent throughout this gospel. Even as he is on his way to Jerusalem, he still takes time to heal 
and cure and love and liberate those whom he comes into contact with. It doesn't feel like he is in a hurry, but he also doesn't waver or get distracted from his end goal. And in this part, he basically ridicules Herod. I mean, I hope you caught that. It's not like a big insult now to call each other a fox, but, you know, he's saying, I'm the son of God, you're just a fox. So go tell that fox I got work to do. In Herod's rule, the way he has been ruling, this is kind of a big moment. You don't talk back to Herod. You don't point out his faults or insult him. You certainly don't ignore him. You do not challenge his leadership. Jesus kind of perfectly sets the scene for what is to come in Jerusalem. And then there's a lament. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. This is a lament that Jesus is saying here. Now, Jerusalem, the word literally means city of peace. Jesus is heading towards the place where he will die, and he knows what is coming, and he laments what is going to happen in that place, the city of peace. Jerusalem, how far have you strayed from what you were meant to be? You hear the sadness in these words from Jesus. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you, Jerusalem, were not willing? You hear the lament in this verse. How often does God long to gather us in, to protect us, to cover us? Hens truly do this, by the way. I'm pretty sure I've preached a whole sermon on this with pictures and everything where they actually spread their wings out to hide their chicks from predators or bad weather or any threat, really. Now, quick side note, I would be very remiss if I did not, as a lady pastor, take one quick moment to note the feminine imagery used by Jesus for God here. We tend to think of God as a shepherd or a king or a father welcoming back an errant child, but we tend to kind of skip right over these feminine ones. What might it mean that Jesus likens God to a hen, a mother hen, that God longs to protect us and keep us safe like a mother? I wonder what we might miss out on when we go to warrior and sheep herder and father instead. Now Jesus' lament here points out a different way, right? He's setting up a contrast between Herod and him. It's kind of a choice of leadership, if you will. Who do we follow? Who do we let lead us? What way do they lead? See, the people of Judea hoped, falsely, but hoped that Herod would be as one of them, would maybe bring about some peace, that his power and position would be used on their behalf. Finally, they might have someone in their corner fighting for them, someone who truly cared about them and their well-being as the person who was set to lead. And yet, when push comes to shove, Herod does what he always does, which is choose whatever keeps him in power over the well-being of the people he is supposed to be taking care of. Like so many times in the Gospels, this different way is set clearly this morning. This different way is not sly and devious, 
but caring and protective. More hen, less fox. And this offer of a new way, this description of a new way, is made in lament in this form of sadness because so often we choose the way of the fox. Jesus says he longs to gather those in the city of peace like a mother hen gathering her chicks, but he laments you were unwilling. Honestly, I think most of the things that we do that cause lament from God over us come down to these three words. You were unwilling. I mean, isn't that the truth? When we have a choice set out in front of us between fear and love, hate and kindness, violence or protection, which do we most often choose? I mean, if we have the option of trusting God or just taking care of it ourselves, what do we usually do? If we're faced with a decision that benefits us at the cost of someone else or choosing the way that isn't best for us but benefits the whole, which one wins there? How often have I longed to gather you in, but you were unwilling. We are so often unwilling children of God. And I love the dichotomy of that phrase, because our unwillingness does not change our belovedness. Our unwillingness does not change that we are God's children, but we so often choose self-sufficiency and violence. We choose ourselves. We mostly choose the way of the fox. And this choice we make, honestly, I think it's because our culture is set up to make us think the fox will always win. So we might as well go with the fox. It kind of feels like it's not really a choice, honestly. I mean, I'm a biology major. I understand that in the food chain, the hen is not above the fox, right? The fox does win in that. So we choose the leadership of the fox because we feel like, you know what, the fox wins. There isn't another option. And this metaphor is really clear to us when it feels like, gosh, the bad people win kind of a lot. Bad things kind of feel like they win a lot, right? Addiction, depression, death, cancer, illness, they feel like they're winning a lot. And when we have the choice, between fighting our own fights and taking care of ourselves, not worrying about anybody else, securing our position of power, or huddling under the wings of a mother hen, which one do we choose? Our culture values winning. We look up to those with money and power, often ignoring how they got there, and that doesn't fit too well with this mother hen protection model of leadership. We don't like to huddle underneath the wings of a God who longs to gather us in. All this following the way of the fox does is really change us from people who embody the city of peace into unwilling children. I saw a video this week. I felt like it explained the tension between these two fox and hens types of leadership between Jesus and the leaders of the day, uh, in a video by Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltzweber, caveat, 
She does say a swear word. Just going to throw that out there. It's fine. All right? It's fine. Okay, so here we go. Take a look. At different times in my life, there were forces that felt so powerful and totally in control. My addiction, my unhealthy relationship, my horrible boss, my anxiety and depression. At the time, these things felt inescapable, like they would always rule me. So back in Jesus' day, there were these emperors who ruled for a certain number of years, and then they didn't. It's one reason I'm kind of obsessed with how the story of Jesus is set up when the Bible says, in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and during the high priesthood of these dudes who were high priests, the word of God didn't come to a damn one of them. But during their reign, I imagine it also felt like they would always rule. Those whose power at the time they were alive felt so absolute are only a footnote to Jesus. Given that list of emperors and rulers, I wonder if he was preaching to an anxious people needing some hope in that context, real hope, not platitudes or cheerful sentiment. I say this because there are things happening in our world right now that make me and a lot of people I love very anxious. So maybe we can pray for the conversion of our anxiety because when anxiety is converted, you know what it becomes? It becomes hope, which means if you have anxiety now, you are almost hopeful. You're like super close. You remember that list of emperors and rulers at the beginning of the gospel, the ones who were so feared and powerful at the time? The only reason these tiny so-called powerful men are even remembered at all 2,000 years later is as a footnote. So here's my prayer for those of us who are so anxious that we're nearly hopeful. Let's all name every single thing and person that seems so powerful right now as to feel inescapable. Rulers, tyrants, societal forces, etc. Name them and then say footnote. Pontius Pilate, footnote. Your depression, footnote. Student loans, footnote. The gun lobby, footnote. Power-hungry narcissists of every variety, footnote. In a time where fear and deceit was synonymous with power, Jesus speaks of something different. You might say that is still true today, where fear and deceit are synonymous with power. Jesus speaks something different. He inserts hope into the current political climate of his day and of ours. He preaches healing and protection to a people who are anxious and so hungry to be heard and seen and cared for. And then he does it. See, that's the thing that is most powerful in these five short verses before us. Jesus has a plan and no fox will distract him. And even our own unwillingness to take what is offered to us doesn't 
stop him from going to Jerusalem and doing it anyway. Setting up a different way. Jesus does what he has set out to do. What he always does. To show us a different way and to love the world back to life. And that begins around a table with his disciples, even the one who would betray him on the night in which he was betrayed. Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant. It's the new way. It's shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy Salvation on which we'll stand.